Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. This time, we're hitting up the great state of Oklahoma, a state that's been on our radar for a while now. And we're talking to Mr. Tyrell Roy. How are you doing, man? Good. How about y'all? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm excited to be talking about Oklahoma. Uh, we, we turkey hunted Oklahoma probably four years ago now. And ever since we, we went out there to turkey hunt, I was like, man, we got we to gotta get back out here for a deer hunt. And, uh, and there's a lot of deer killers like yourself that live in Oklahoma that put down some really impressive bucks every year. So excited to have the conversation. But, uh, Jacob, how are you doing? Oh, doing well. Doing super well. Andrew, I know you're a little fired up for this conversation, but Tyrell, I, I want to kind of kick it off real quickly. Can you give me a little bit of a background on just what region of Oklahoma are you in? Because Oklahoma is such a diverse state. Uh, we, we had a gentleman on uh, who hunted southeast Oklahoma, you know, a lot more of that pine country, rolling hills, almost like smaller mountains. Uh, but kind of describe a little bit about, like, the, the area of the state that you hunt in and what the habitat's kind of like to give listeners a, a better idea of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so I live – I break it down by saying that I live in, like, the northeast corner of the northwest quadrant, basically. And our, our terrain or our habitat is – it's mainly ag. So, I mean, like big, 
big ag fields. There's a there's a river bottom, creek bottoms, but it's not like when when you think of a creek bottom, river bottom, it's not like what pops into most people people's mind. You know, it's like brushy, not very not very big trees, real real brushy and thick, nasty stuff. And then like basically north of the river that's right here, there's it's like sand hills, so real sandy, grassy, plum thickets. You know, some trees mixed in here and there, but pretty much wide open farm country. And and see, this is one thing I'm interested about this conversation is for anybody that's interested in traveling to maybe not necessarily even Oklahoma, but some of these other Midwestern states, a little bit more open ground. This is going to be an interesting kind of conversation to figure out how you go about hunting some of these areas and how somebody maybe could travel and have a better idea before they get there. If they're coming from an area of the country like we're in, where it's mostly timbered, um, you know, it, it is a little bit different when you get to a little bit more open ground and, and how the deer use that habitat. And, you know, as we talk about the podcast, what is negative terrain that deer necessarily don't use a whole bunch during daylight hours compared to your positive terrain where the deer really spend a lot of their time. And again, in that open terrain, you know, you might be able to kind of uh, piece it together a little bit quicker but then you gotta put yourself in the right spot especially if you're trying to target a mature buck which of course you like to really do um so i want to talk about so we kind of have an idea of the train talk to me about this because if if anybody knows about oklahoma like a lot of states especially like in the in the southeast and the deep south a lot of these states allow baiting oklahoma is a really big baiting state talk about your experience when it comes to you know i guess maybe not having the um well, not necessarily having, but what is your thought process on someone trying to kill a mature buck on bait versus using bait maybe the way that you do it for just kind of keeping tabs on where some of these deer are at and kind of keeping inventory and figuring out, you know, these other areas you might want to target? Right. So to me, I, I look at, I try to look at it from a, you know, a 30,000 foot view with, with the bait. I, I feel like a lot of people, think they're going to put a corn pile out their season prep is they put a corn pile or bait pile out they run a camera over it and then that's what they're going to hunt for the most part all year and that can be effective but if you're trying to kill you know five and a half year old plus buck it's going to be more challenging and it in my opinion there's more effective ways to use bait I, i definitely use bait but i want to pull out my vision on the bait and say this is a tool it's just like my tree stand it's just like my any like a feed tree it's like a ag field it's that i can use it as a tool to 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 pattern deer to figure out what deer i mean i use it a lot to figure out what deer are there and what deer i want to hunt and then i can i can set it up to where to where that that bait pile is it's very strategically placed so that I can hunt around it. Maybe it might be 200 yards, a hundred yards. It may, it might even not even be close. It might be on the place, you know, half a mile away, but because of how our terrain sets up, there's really hard edges. It's not like where you're, it's not like big timber where you're looking for a soft edge and an interior edge or something. It's really hard edges. There's a hundred plus acres of, crp and there's a tree line that has you know they might be along the river that's the tree line between the river and the crp is 50 yards wide and four miles long and so you have a really hard edge and so i can i can do a couple observation sits and see what they're doing and then from there i can move in 
you know, a lot tighter. So it's easier, easier to pattern, pattern a deer. I mean, I feel like, so I, yeah. So like sometimes I'll hunt over bait, but I don't know if you guys, I, I hunt scrapes a lot and I hunt corn or, or bait similar to how I would hunt a scrape. At least I scout it the same, I should say. I'll put a couple cameras up, but the downwind, like a scrape, you want to be downwind of a scrape, but you want to be downwind of your corn. But also you want to be, if there is, if there's something going to come check that you want to be just off wind, right? He's going to come into that. He's not going to like, you'll have, you'll watch 20 does come into your bait. They come in down the trail. They get 30 yards from the bait. They loop downwind, come into it from the downwind, but that bug doesn't do that. He he's a hundred yards downwind and he, he can check it without even getting close. So once I started figuring that out and figuring out how to hunt it, you know, down, he wants to come into that, that bait with the wind in his face and he might just scent check it. He doesn't even want to, he doesn't want to eat it. Now, early season, late season, different, but for the most, like right now, they're really starting. I'm getting a lot less bucks on camera just because they're just checking it. They might come through there for a few seconds and then they're just, they're going on, they're working a scrape. They're going, they're just checking it out. Now, also, this is something that's uh, pretty important for a lot of our listeners. We have a lot of listeners that do hunt private land that do, does allow baiting. Um, and, you know, this is something maybe you could relate with. You know, if you're in a hunting club, which is something that we have a lot down here, you don't really see it necessarily in your area of the country. You might have a few guys get a lease. But, you know, down here, you might have a lease that's a hunting club that might be 2,000 acres that has 20 members in it. And right. on, on that lease, you know, they may allow baiting. If they allow baiting, if the state allows for the baiting, um, you know, you may have each guy might have two or three corn piles put out on that property. Okay. Yeah. And they're all hunting the same deer. They're all getting the same bucks on camera. And, yeah. uh, and I think a lot of our, uh, at least a lot of our listeners, especially that are hunting the, the, the private land deal with the situation that, um, you know, they may have that buck showing up to a corn pile at 10, 11 o'clock at night, maybe once every couple of weeks, but there's no specific pattern on it, but doesn't mean he's not scent checking it. Like you're saying from hundreds of yards downwind, and never right. even having to come to the bait pile because he's not all—he's not really interested in necessarily eating the corn or whatever he's put out. But he's checking for yeah. does. He's seeing who else is in the area. And I think it, you know, as we kind of talk through this conversation, and people see a little bit more of your hunting style, especially you know, folks like when you're talking about bait or talking about scrapes and getting downwind of it, focusing on doing that, especially on some of this private land, we're probably gonna have a lot more people have success doing so, especially if a lot of the other members on those clubs are running feeders or put, putting corn out or whatever else they may be putting out on that property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like when I hunt my, like I hunt, obviously I hunt private property for the most part. And I don't have, I have very, very few permanent tree stands. I use a saddle sticks and I'm very mobile. So, which is like to a lot of people don't understand that if you're going to bait, why not put up a ladder stand or a blind or whatever and just, and wait for the right wind or whatever. But usually the right wind for me to hunt it isn't the right wind for that buck to come check it. So I have to hunt it when it doesn't make sense for me to hunt a bait pile, but I'm hunting a basically a travel corridor or how I think that buck's going to move into it. That That is like hands down one of the most effective ways in my opinion, because a buck comes into a, a bait scenario, he's going to be very alert, especially if he's mature. He's going to be on, on edge. 
And if and if he's coming down, he's gonna he's, he's gonna be more comfortable in an area, just because if there's a lot of deer in a tight spot, it's gonna put him a little uneasy. There's human scent or whatever. If you're hunting that bait pile a lot, you're gonna lay down scent. They're gonna they're gonna know you're there. So he's gonna be very cautious coming in. So I think even if he does come in, then your chances of putting a bad shot on him or him reacting just because he's higher alert is goes against you but if you can if you can set a scenario up where and i use food plots a lot too so if i can if i know he's using this food plot or this bait pile i can kind of figure out how he's getting to it and he wants to get to it where he can his chances of survival are the highest right so i'm gonna have to put myself pretty much at a, at a risk to shoot him because i'm gonna have to like I've killed, I don't know how many deer I've killed. That one on the end down there is one that really sticks out in my mind. He was coming into a food plot in a bait pile. I mean, consistent, 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 but I could never hunt it. When he would come, it was always a north wind. I could never hunt it. And so I started way out and I came in, took me a couple sits, come in, and then where he's coming in, he's done this a I don't know how many times he's done this. Probably more times than I even realized. He's come in. He's used it a certain way. But now I'm right here. And literally, I shot that deer two foot from getting my wind. And, I mean, I, don't, I almost think he smelled me. It's all, it's all on film. And you can see him react right as I shot him. So it's, it's just playing that wind. As much as anybody else where you, you can't bait or not, it's the same game. But, but I have something that is holding does so it's attracting a mature buck and i can hunt him as he uses that terrain and and when i say terrain our terrain there's no terrain it's it's flat there's some sandals sand hills here and there but i'm looking for like how the like the trees the brush basically that's the terrain that is that will funnel him so this is a this is a tactic that I was really excited to talk to you about because I see this as something I could implement on my hunting club. We're not allowed to bait out there anymore, uh, the the landowner uh, band baiting, but we still have food plots, and there's a lot of guys who hunt certain food plots religiously. I mean, we got we got a pinout board with a big map, a big paper map, and you put your thumbtack where you're going to go, and man, these food plots, there's just <laughs> nothing there. It looks like you shot it with like a 45, you know, right there. It's just a hole in the map where people yeah, pin out gets, so many times. That gets me excited. That gets me so fired up because you're looking at somebody's Onyx map who has all yes. these places pinned, and you have all <laughs> these food plot pinned, and guess what's left open? Where that deer lives. Yes, That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm excited to talk about it, man. So I want to I want to dive pretty deep on how you're essentially locating these bucks. Like like you like you said, um, whether it's a bait pile, a scrape, or a food plot, it, it's it's a focal point is is what it is. Like a, that a buck is coming to. It's a location that you know that he's coming to consistently, and then you can use that to kind of figure out where he's coming from and where you can get on him. So I want right. to drill down into that. And how you basically go about that from start to finish, you know, essentially backtracking that buck to a spot where you can kill him. And I guess one of the first things I'm curious about is 
is it just a hundred percent cameras? Like you're just running cameras to find these deer, or is there any kind of sign reading involved in it too? Like looking for big tracks, or looking for uh, like rubs coming to certain areas, or or I mean, what's your process look like for actually locating the buck that you want to go after? So, I, I mean, I, I nerd out on this stuff, okay? As far as like finding deer, I it's what I do, and I I have two little girls now, so it, it's it's. I don't do it as much as I used to just because time or whatever. I, I still, I have an amazing wife who supports me and I get to do it a lot, but I, I spend countless hours in January, February looking for these deer. I want to find that deer that I know because out here you have all this wheat field in the winter in January, February, you have all this green wheat field. Every deer is coming out on these wheat fields. So I can just drive around, glass, 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 find a deer I want to go after, or I probably have history with one. Like right now, I have I don't even know how many deer I have on camera that I won't shoot that are going to be next year, the year after targets, you know. Um, I'm blessed to have property that I can grow deer on. So that helps. But as far as like, I so I pretty much always know all summer, I'm watching soybeans, I'm finding the deer, right? I know there's there's these two deer, and that's that's another thing out here. There's the deer numbers are incredible. If you want to kill them, excited. So on Ter- I'm, Terrell, you you cut out. Um, oh my bad. The, the, when when uh, uh, no, I'm gonna let you pick it up. Uh, the last thing we heard was you talking about the deer numbers are incredible, and then it kind of cut out from there. Yeah, yeah. So the deer numbers are incredible. So I, to shoot a mature a mature deer is that's I mean that's relatively e- easy. So I want to shoot like a deer that really gets me excited. So I I find that deer and I find one two three deer, you know, long before the season starts that are, you know, obviously have to be on my property, places that I can access or whatever. And then from there, then you start, then I start, you know, building a a plan. And and usually that is, I'll run cameras pretty much all year over scrapes. And then I'll run cameras on bait. And then I'll run cameras in, there's a few places where I know that are produced year after year, pinch points, bedding areas that I can put cameras in and find at least just, continue to get pictures of these deer but really once i have a picture of a deer and like i know that that deer is there i feel like people can get too caught up and i have to have pictures of them because i i have i have farms where i get pictures of the same deer you know consistently and then i have farms where i don't ever get pictures but i can go hunt and almost every time i can see that deer especially if i'm sitting up high on a hill and glassing and stuff i can see him i know he's there i'm just not getting a lot of pictures of him so I wouldn't say that, you know, getting pictures of them is a, people get caught up in that. I think, I don't think that's necessarily, it's definitely not the end all be all on killing a mature buck. But then once you start breaking it down into, I mean, I, I wish I could pull up a map here and, and, and pin it on a, on a map, but there, there's so many areas where it's like, okay, this is clearly bedding. If I go in there. So most of my scouting is done in, February when I'm shed hunting, I go walk miles and miles and miles and miles and I find, you know, where they're rubbing, where they're scraping, where I think they're bedding. And then as I, as I hunt those places, I can just 
pop up and look, see what the deer are doing. Look, I'm like you're saying, I'm looking for scrapes, looking for rubs, where the hottest sign is. <clears throat> it's like, it's kind of like spokes on a wheel. You have, you know, the deer's living within this 30, 40, 50 acres right here. This is where he's bedding. But to get his food, he's got to go. He's got to cross the river. He's got to go out to this bean field or he has to go to this wheat field. That's where all the other deer are going. He's going to do something similar. So then you just set up on those points or on those spokes of the wheel and find, you know, which ones he uses and where he feels comfortable and move in. So it's to answer your question, it is cameras, but it's also getting up in a tree and observing. And then I would, I would say hands down, the biggest thing is weather. I, it, I can't stress that enough, especially where I live. You can have a deer that's showing up to your bait pile, you know, 10 o'clock at night, every night, you get a north wind cold front October 10th you'll kill them on that trail you know an hour before dark it's just that weather gets them to move so much mm -hmm. yeah that was another thing I wanted to ask about which this is something that I used to pay a lot more attention to just with how I, I used to run trail cameras but uh, in recent years I've kind of got away from it just because I don't run cameras the way I used to but it's the idea of like wind-based travel and you kind of alluded to it a little bit where you were talking about that buck that you killed that he was always coming to that that bait pile and food plot but it was always with a north wind which you couldn't hunt him on uh is that something that you do where if you get a couple pictures of a buck because you just stated that you know you don't have to have him on camera like every day to be confident but when he does show up on camera, are you looking for any kind of consistency with the wind and have that kind of clue you in to where he's coming from? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously watch the, watch a camera, how they're entering the frame, how they're leaving that sort of thing. But yeah, that with, with that deer in particular, I had a lot of history with that deer. I, I had two different properties that were a quarter mile apart. And there was a an 80 between the two properties I had to hunt, and he lived on that 80. But if I had the one wind, he would go the other way. If I had the wind, the north wind, he would go to this property. And so, I mean, I don't know how many times we missed each other because I was over here because it was a good win for me. And that's when I really started getting mobile and decided, you know, I, I can't just I'm never gonna kill a deer, especially him, if I don't, you know make a move to kill him where, where he's killable and not. Okay. I got you. Um, so in that, in that situation, one reason I asked that is cause I, I'm really curious about one wind-based bedding, which I'm, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of it out there because I'll go out on a limb and say that ain't happening in the Southeast. Like they're not, they're not wind-based bedding, but what do you see when it comes to wind-based bedding? Uh, because it's something that we got wrapped up in for a couple years, and like I've just struggled to to put two and two together with it. Um, but I'm wondering if it's different in more open country, especially more open, flatter country, kind of like what you're talking about. Uh, are you are you paying attention to that kind of thing? Is that something that you've seen over the years? No. What what I've seen out here is betting is betting. It doesn't matter what what the wind is doing. Now I there's there's one. Uh, place in particular I'm thinking of and it's real open woods as far as you as far out here real open you can see under it but it's real grassy too and that it's they love to bed in it but they will bed on one side or the other of it depending on how the wind's blowing 
but it's not like they're moving a half a mile or, you know, it's literally 20 yards or maybe they're facing the other direction, but it's not, it's not, I don't think it plays that big of a role. Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited to hear you say that because, because I can yeah. use that against Jacob now because <laughs> we, uh, we kind of argue about it. So uh, when it comes to wind-based betting, so y- you say betting is betting when it comes to travel though, uh, or would you say that they're they're picking travel corridors specifically based on wind and or thermals, uh, and that's kind of dictating where they go? Because the reason I'm asking is like, okay, well, he's got this bedding area that he likes. Let's say he's got two corn piles on either side of him. Uh, is he going to go to this corn pile because he can keep the wind in his nose when he goes to it, or does it matter? I think it absolutely matters. Now, And I've seen this. Now, as far as having a bay pile over here, a bay pile over here, and I'm going over here because it's the south wind, I'm going over here because it's the north wind, I couldn't say that. I couldn't guarantee that. But I can say with 100% confidence, it affects how they travel to a certain destination. Now, now picking a destination, I don't know. But like I've got food plots that I've, I've sat in a tree stand and watched this countless times. They will always, I can see, I've got the river right here, I've got a creek right here, and like a quarter mile between, and I've got a food plot in the middle. And they they will come out of the bedding, and they will go way out around if it's a north wind. They'll go way out this way if it's a south wind. They, they absolutely, it absolutely affects their travel, in my opinion. And how do you play off of that? Um, I, like, I'm one of the things I'm trying to I'm trying to get into here is, how you're determining where it is that you can actually pinpoint to get get in front of them uh like how do you know how far back to go on their trail because like we've established that you're you got the bait pile you got the scrape you got the food plot whatever that focal point is and then you're you're you have a general idea of where he's coming from well how is it that you're determining like how far back you need to be off that food source or how close you're getting to bedding like what does that in between area look like for you so, I mean, I would say terrain feature, which, like I said, there's very few terrain features. But this, just the pinch point and terrain feature, that's what I can say 100%. So, depending on the weather, it's going to dictate how close I'm going to get to bedding. But also, depending on that, is like, okay, if I have a south wind, they're looping around to the, I guess it would be the north side of the food plot so they can smell it. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to risk busting deer. But I know that that buck's betting over here and he wants to get to it here. Now, there might be does betting, you know, straight, you know, downwind of me that I'm going to bump. But that to me, that's just that's just part of the game. So I'm going to get as close to the edge that I feel like I can. And that might not be close enough. He might go 60 yards, you know, beyond what I can shoot or whatever. But then maybe the next time I'm going to move up closer to that. But. If I can find, like, there's always, like I said, out here, there's a lot of hard edges, but there is soft edges in there that you can find that once, if you can identify those, there, I mean, that that's where I set up. Now, I might miss them, but I'm going to kill them something, you know, a percentage of the time, too. Can you give us uh, uh, examples of what a soft edge would look like in, in your ear, in your habitat? So, so this one place in particular I'm thinking of, I've got the river on one side and it's just like what we call salt cedars all along. It's real thick, nasty. 
deer doesn't want to travel through it. They will. So if you have a line like this of salt cedars, they'll go through it like this, but they won't go through down it, you know, long ways. So they're either going to go on one side or the other of it, right? So that's that's a hard edge. Now, if I can find something right out here that they're traveling like this, now I have something, a finger, it could be a fence. It could be a two cedar trees that they just go around. So it's going to funnel them just a little bit. Or maybe I'll put a mock scrape right here where I have a good tree. That buck's going to come check it on his way. He feels comfortable because the wind is maybe blowing. This is one thing, too. Another thing that I think is essential to, to understanding is a buck. Everyone says a buck wants to travel with his nose into the wind, right into the oncoming wind. Are you froze? But if, if I feel like if the wind, he thinks that wind is still in his face. So it might be quartering from like over here, coming across his nose like this, and he's traveling like this. He can smell it all, but I'm right here, and he it's just missing his nose, right? Because it's just quartering off him. It's not straight in the. So he's going to try to travel the train with it, with the wind right in his nose. But invariably he's going to be just off wherever i think he's going to be just off maybe he has to go around some cedars maybe he has to cross a fence at a certain spot or maybe it's a little washout sometimes you'll have like in the river you'll have like where the bank is high there'll be a ditch okay so he's going to head he's going to cut around then so that's a perfect to me i i think that's a perfect hard edge soft edge he's going to move around it now you're necking him down from 100 yards to 50 yards also, another thing I've, I've got a question on is specifically when you have a deer coming to, say, a food plot or to a bait site or something like that, and, again, you're trying to hunt that downwind side, kind of like what we're talking about here, and a lot of guys would call this like a killing wind, like a just-off wind that you're just able to get just off that wind enough that the buck thinks it's, you know, in his nose or quartering to his nose. You know, he's coming in. You know, he thinks he can smell everything in front of him, but you're just off the side of him where you can get a shot opportunity before he smells you. How do you go about – or do you ever try to pinpoint like the specific trail you you assume him to coming into the one of those locations? Like say you're 100, 200 yards away from a bed or from a uh, uh, you know a bait pile or a food plot. How do you go about pinpointing what trail he's potentially going to walk down compared to what the does are doing? Mm. I mean trial and error. I I don't run like a ton of cameras. Like I might have one camera over a bait pile on a 320 acre piece. That just lets me know what's living around there, whatever. So I'm not running cameras on every trail, every scrape, you know, so it's not that kind of intel isn't there. So it, number one, the number one thing is historical data. Number two is just just looking at going and physically looking at it, because if, if you guys could just see these trails, you would understand there. I mean, it's a cattle pack. And that, that deer is going to travel within 20 yards of that path. Probably not on it, but he'll be within 20 yards of it. Just because the the undergrowth and stuff is so thick, it will channel these deer. Uh, I actually had a question about that, kind of going back a little bit. You mentioned that you don't have a lot of uh, terrain in your area. And when you're trying to backtrack these deer and figure out where you can kill them, you're talking about getting on pinch points. And when you say pinch points, to somebody like me, I'm like, oh, saddle, 
you know what it like stuff like that in hill country that I'm used to hunting. What is it for you that that constitutes a a pinch point in in flat, you know, ag country? The, the normal thing that pops in my mind is a scrape, a community scrape. It's there's no there's no terrain involved, but every deer is gonna funnel to that point. Now it might be like this community scrape out, right? So the closer you can get to that community scrape, that's a funnel. <clears throat> or a lot of times it's trees. Like if you have thick cedar trees or salt cedars, they don't want to go, they don't want to travel in it. They'll go around it. So, so it's you're creating a, a pinch point. Also, like crossings in the river or uh fence crossings are a big one. But I can strategically pay, place my uh it's like a kill plot, food plot, small food plot. That's going to funnel. It's going to be a pinch point. Or uh, even bait can be a, a pinch point. If you put, if you have a, a mile of river frontage or a tree row that's 100 yards wide or whatever, you put a pile of bait in the middle of it. Instead of now they're going to, they want to travel on the edge. Oh, they're going to dive in to get this bait maybe or check it and then back out. So that, so it's a lot less like, uh, like your classic pinch point that you're thinking like saddle and it's more uh how are the deer going to travel because of something like a cedar or a fence you know if you can find a gate in a fence that that can be killer too yeah so it's it, it just you just have flat you have a couple cedars here a river here pinch point that is really interesting because I've never really thought of it that mm-hmm. way. But in in flat land like that, it's it's less of and and you don't have like a like a giant river or anything like that that's causing these huge oxbows and like forcing movement. But you're talking about flat land, not a lot of features, uh, and it's less about a, a a habitat or a terrain feature that's forcing movement. And that's what I'm talking about, like something that forces movement. Like that's what I'm used to with a pinch point, like a bluff gap, saddle, something along those lines. You're talking more about some destination thing that the deer are probably going to gravitate towards. And, you know, that's as, that's about as good as you're going to get in that area. Am I on target there? Yeah, you're on target. But it it's a lot, to me, in my opinion, it's a lot less gravitate toward than it is a hard pinch point. Deer, deer are uh, habitual. They're going to do the same thing over and over and over, unless there's a reason not to. It's, it's cover- Food, cover, food, cover, food. It's the same thing. And how they get there, out here, they might be traveling a mile to get the food, right? And they're going to do the same thing every single day until they have a reason not to. But on from point A to point B, they're going to make moves. And, and once you understand how deer move, you're going to be able to identify these targets, these uh, pinch points. And in, in my mind, like we were talking about earlier, a pinch point is – something that makes a deer move a certain way consistently. And if, and it might be the littlest thing, it might be a tree that they just like to go under and their, their travel is just thinking like a deer is what it is. And if they're going to travel across this wide open field to get to a wheat field, a half a mile away, they might, for some reason, pick a spot in the fence to cross. It's the same fence, the whole half a mile, but for some reason that's where they're going to cross or, a couple trees that they want to go by just because maybe right there, they feel a little bit more cover or a little bit more protected. That to me, that's a pin. Or like, especially like the trees, like, again, if you have like a couple lone trees that they're near walking to, it's almost like a landmark for them or whatever. They always walk 
past that tree. I don't know if it was Glenn Solomon talked about that in Georgia. There was there's someone we've interviewed in the South uh, talking about hunting. Uh, actually, it might have been uh, Doug White hunting uh, like big palmetto flats, which is completely opposite. You know, right, yeah. kind of area <laughs> yeah. of what we're talking about here with you. Hunting Jurassic Park. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> there's only a couple trees out there, and for whatever reason, the deer can't see through the palmettos, but they can look up and see that tree from hundreds of yards away that they, like, if you look at it on it's aerial. Like the North Star. Yeah, if you look on aerial imagery, you'll see all these trails in some of those areas coming to that tree and past that tree. They're not, like, feeding under that tree. It might be a palm tree or something. I mean, it might be, you know, something that's not a feed tree. But they're coming right. by that tree because it's a landmark, and then they kind of divert off from that point. And that would be kind of what we're talking about here. And your example would be a pinch point that they're they're pinching down that movement to that specific you know landmark feature, and then they're kind of going off that. And the same thing like what you're saying with like the community scrapes and uh, and other features as well. Right. Yeah. Deer are if you look at a on X map, you just east scouting, especially out in this area, Kansas or western Oklahoma. You start zooming up on a spot, you can see trails from satellite imagery. You can see deer trails, and a lot of them will look like spider webs, you know. There, but but you can see where they neck down. Okay, there's this big, say there's a bunch of there's bedding over here, and then there's a fence row of trees, and then there's food over here, and there's like this grass, you know, five acres in between. They hit that grass and it spreads out, and then it tightens back up when it goes into cover, right? So it's like a candy wrapper. You have the candy in the middle and the tight ends on each end, right? And that's where you would hunt those each ends right there. You hunt a tree out in the middle, it's a shot in the dark whether that deer is going to come by you or deer is going to win you or what. But hunting those those ends or find, identifying those points is where you want to hunt. Interesting. Uh, candy wrapper, that's a new one. Yeah, I, a good- I like that. I actually like that a yeah. lot. Yeah, uh, Jolly Rancher. First thing came to mind. Yeah, bro. Yeah, Jolly Golly, no, I was like a Jolly Tootsie Rancher. Roll. Oh, to- Tootsie Roll, dude. That's a terrible. That's a terrible candy, man. God, dude, that's about as bad as Twizzlers. I'm probably gonna piss people off by saying Twizzlers. I don't like Twizzlers either. God, right. ain't nothing compared to a Reese's Cup. But anyways, but, hey, listen, number one for a reason. Yeah, let's let's go. Um, all right, all right. What the hell? What were we talking about now? Candy <laughs> I gotta go with this. Deer, deer are. Uh, they're herd animals, right? They like to interact. I mean, you'll have a variant in some deer's personality, in my experience. They want to interact with each other. So where where a deer, especially a buck, he has one thing on his mind coming into November, where he can travel. He, essentially, he's going to do the same things that the other deer is, the other deer are doing, but he wants to do it where he can check those deer more efficiently. So how he moves through that train is where he can, you know, he might, it might be a little bit different. Even, even though you see this hard sign right here, it's 50 does that are going to that wheat field and some young buck, but that buck, he's going to be a little bit different. He might be diagonaling it or something where he can smell it. That, and that helped where, where that, that, that point comes in to a, a little terrain feature, a scrape, something like that. That's how, that's how I identify how that buck's moving. How much do, of a factor do rubs play in your tactics? When when you're going and you're looking at these trails, you're looking at these pinch points, are you looking for really fresh rubs or, or historical rubs, or do they just do they matter at all to you? Yeah, I mean, they get me fired up. I love rubs because that means a buck's shredding something and he has a lot of testosterone. But that's about it. 
I mean, really, I, historical rubs are cool. I mean, I put some cameras up over them. Out here, you know, it's like you think of Kansas, you got a fence post rub. Out here, we got fence post rubs, and it, you know, sweet. The hourglass rub, you know, it's that big in the middle and that big on the end. Super cool. But, I mean, I don't, I don't hunt rubs. It doesn't play a factor in how I set up or anything. The rubs, to me, rubs tell me that there's bucks there. Like I'm in the right area, but as far as like a micro detail of how I'm going to set up, not at all. Okay. Yeah. And that's more what I was wondering about. Like if you're going into an area and you're approaching like a pinch point or just an area that you're wanting to hunt where you're thinking about throwing a stand up, if you go in there and you don't see rubs, are you like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I should hunt this. Or do you have to see a rub to feel confident that there's bucks in the area? When I hunt public, I have to see a rub, but on my farm, I don't have to see a rub just because I might be going into a way into the farm away. I know that that buck, it's not necessarily a strong corridor. If I see a rub, you know, it's as big as my finger. It's not, it's pro, I mean, more than likely it's not the deer I'm hunting. So I, I might be accessing it to where I'm, I'm not even going to see, shoot, I might walk down the river and I walk down the Creek. And then when I get into a spot, like I, you know, I can look at Onyx. I can pull up Onyx. I look at where my food plot is, where my bait pile is, where destination food plots are, where water is. And I know by by identifying these things, I know by default where bedding is. Like you were saying earlier with your with your uh, club, everyone's hunting the, the food plot. Well, by default, you see the bedding. You see where that deer, deer feels comfortable, where people don't go. And that's the same thing. I, I don't I don't go into those areas where I think that deer's bedding until I have exactly the right wind, exactly the right weather. Then I, I have no problem going in there. And then I'll, you know, I'll go in there and hunt. But because of process of elimination, I, I've identified where that deer lives. I have the privilege of hunting these places year after year after year. So it, it, I don't even have to think about it anymore. I can set up, and that's another thing with bait. I, I would tell guys, at least guys in this area of the state for sure, and probably East Texas the same, is your your bait pile is a strategy. It is not your end game. It's a strategy in your hunting playbook. You have you have all this cover where these deer are, okay? So, like, in, in this scenario that I'm thinking of, I have the river makes a big bend, have all this cover along the inside bend of the river, and it's a little river, more like a creek. Make and then on the on the south side, on the opposite side, you have these ag fields that might be beans, wheat, and it's a half mile away. But you have all this cover right here. These deer going from cover crossing the river out to destination ag. So where I place my bait in there is very strategic because I want that deer to move. I want him to move from where he is to come to my bait. I don't want to put my bait right where he is because then he's going to feel, I ha, you have to put it in a place where he, it, he's going to feel comfortable going, but it's also, he's going to have to move to go. That gives you the opportunity to hunt him as he's going from A to B. Now, if he has to move the opposite direction to go check a bait pile and then out to the ag field, that's money in the bank. Now you have two different approaches to hunt now and you can hunt them the opposite whether it's morning or evening 
another thing with bait if if you got if you have if you're running cameras say you're running a cell camera this probably only works if you're running a cell camera you're running a cell camera on your bait pile and a deer shows up right now i'm starting to have some bucks show up in the morning if a, if a buck shows up in the morning on my bait pile almost 90 percent of the time he will be there before dark in the evening almost 90 percent of the time so if you get a buck on camera right after daylight in the morning almost guaranteed go hunt it in the evening He'll be hunt where you think he's coming out of or how he's approaching that food, food source. Interesting. Why, why do you think that is? Because I, I feel like if they were there in the morning, they, it was daylight. They feel comfortable. They're like, ah, it's not that big a deal. I, I, you know, I'm comfortable here. I, I was fine here this morning. I can go back. The wind's still the same. I've seen, I've seen that happen. I, I don't know how many times that deer I killed just a couple weeks ago was like that. Interesting. And that's another, another interesting thing too, is like I have a cell cam on that particular uh, maypile and that morning that deer showed up at like nine o'clock. Never seen that deer ever have no history with that deer show up at nine o'clock. And I, and I told him, told myself he's going to be there tonight. Sure enough. Went in there and hunted, killed him coming to it. Nice. Yeah. That's a, uh... I feel like that's a that's a little bit of a struggle, especially here in the southeast, because uh, we have we have a overabundance of cover in a lot of areas. Um, it basically, if it's not a food plot in some areas, like my club's kind of like this. If it's not a food plot, it, it's probably pretty decent cover at that point. Yeah. And, and and so it, it becomes like the deer aren't necessarily limited to like food, but they're or not limited to cover. They're maybe more limited to food, and so they're just kind of selecting cover around that. But in a lot of cases, the the cover might come right up against the food. In fact, right. where we were hunting this past weekend, the the cover, I mean, literally butts up against the food plot, and they can just walk through the cover and pop directly into the food plot. Uh, have you ever hunted anything like that where where your your food source or your destination is essentially right on top of that cover? Yes. Yeah, so the first word that comes to mind when you're talking about something like that is layering. These deer will layer, and I'm sure you guys are very familiar with this. You're gonna have your young bucks, your does first, bucks in the back. That, in my experience, that's how it is. I can I have one. I don't have it up on this wall. A buck I killed last year. He was bedding a hundred yards from the food source. And I, and I couldn't find this buck on cameras, and I happened to be driving down the road, glass and wheat field in the evening, and saw him coming out on this wheat field. And I knew the way he was coming out, he didn't, he's not going far at all. The bedding is just right inside there. And it's the same – at least here it is. He's going to – depending on the wind, how he's going to bed in that cover and how they're going to be stacked in there. He's going to be the first one to escape. So, so if you're looking at if you're looking at a bedding area, where's the escape route? Like, so you have this bedding area right here. You have they're traveling this way to food, and then right here, like in this particular case, the rivers right here. You got a steep bank and some trails worn in it, and then you have a little a ditch right here before you have the the food source. But that ditch like loops around like this, right? So he he can bed right here. He has three areas of escape: really thick salt cedars down across the river or across this dry creek. He has three escape routes, and he was betting right here on this point. And between him and this food source was all the does. 
this 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 is that bedding area I mentioned earlier that is really open and grassy under there. I can sneak up to that that uh that dry creek. I can walk down it, sneak up to the edge and glass it and see all these deer. I can see the does 50 yards over here bedding on this in the edge over on this on the front edge and on the back edge. He's gonna he's got the wind, he's like looking in, you know, against the wind, which is dumping into the river, coming off the food source which is the prevailing wind, south wind, and he can set right there. If any does smell anything in alert, he's the first one gone. If something is crossing the river up their backside, he's the first one to see it. Onyx Hunt is known for being a super easy to use mapping application that a lot of us are already currently using. But one part about Onyx that you may not be aware of is there elite benefits for elite members. Some extremely notable companies that are part of your elite benefits with Onyx is Vortex, First Light, Woodhaven Custom Calls, Lacrosse Boots, Final Rise Vests, Silencer Central, Federal Ammunition, and much more. There's over 30 different companies, guys, that offer special discounts and promotions along with special services for elite members with your elite benefits. You can find this on your app or on the web browser version of OnX and be able to redeem your special discounts and services through your elite benefits. Now, if you aren't currently an OnX elite member, you can actually use the promo code SOUTHERN when you download the app to be able to save 20% off your membership. Again, if you're not currently an Onyx Elite member, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout when downloading the app to be able to save 20% on your membership. So take advantage, guys, of these elite benefits with your elite membership with Onyx and know where you stand with Onyx. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tying that back into an earlier part of the conversation, you were talking about when you might be going to set up on a buck and you might have to blow out some does in order to get set up correctly on that buck. Uh, how does that play out? Like, are, are there times where you're just, you're not nervous about blowing out do does or are there other times where it's really important? Like what you're talking about with the layering. So in that, that, uh, particular case, I, I knew, I knew what was going on and I went in there to hunt that buck. I, I snuck in the ditch, but this time I didn't, I didn't look, I sneaking around trying to hunt how they were going to access the food source. But I had a southeast wind, so it's kind of angling through there and get away with it. When I got there and got to my tree, it switched to south, which is blowing directly into the bedding cover. 50 deer blew out of that, that thing. So what I did at that point is I go right into the middle of the bedding, and there you have this bedding. It's pretty much around like this. Right on this edge, you have this little seam where the salt cedars are right here, and then they turn and come up. This, this is that pinch point salt cedars really thick salt cedars and open trees right here and a ditch over here and then another round area of bedding but where i on the side i was where all the deer deer blew out of is the premium bedding if if they don't bed where they can see and smell they're bedding in johnson grass i don't know if you guys are familiar with johnson grass mm -hmm. it's nasty it's 
you know, six foot tall. They, and there's trails to it, but they will not bet in it because a coyote will be on them before they, you know, they could be right on top of them before they bust, right? So that they want to bet in the premium spot. And that was the premium spot for hundreds and hundreds of yards. So I blew them out. They went across the pinch and they staged. I went, set up right on the pinch. As I'm setting up, this is two o'clock in the afternoon. As I'm setting up, the does are starting to funnel back. I get set up, all the does, young bucks, and then here come the two mature bucks right through the pinch point, and I shot them at 20 yards. An hour after I blew them out. <clears throat> but, I mean, that that doesn't happen that often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by, by the way, uh, Tyrell, do you ever implement mock scrapes? Like in some of these areas where like maybe there's not already a community scrape or a primary scrape that's being used, but you know there's bucks in the area and you kind of use it as a way to kind of not only get inventory, but get him kind of merging into a specific area that sets up better for an uh, ambush point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't use, I don't use, uh, I mean, very rarely will I use synthetic scents in it. I, I mean, I'll, I'll pee in a scrape. I, I have, I could show you pictures on my phone right now. The other day I set one up, peed in it. An hour later, I've got a 20 inch wide buck scraping in it, you know? So I'll do that. To me, it's, to me, it's visual. If I can give them a visual deal, they'll go scraping it. Two young bucks will scrape in it pretty soon. The other bucks will be scraping in it. And yeah, I'll, I'll I implement that for sure. Now, is that something that, you know, what is the application like? When would you use a mock scrape in this kind of environment and like these kind of this kind of like habitat areas? Right. So this one farm I have is it's strictly a permission farm, right? And I can only bow hunt it, and I can bait on it. But I baited some in the summer, and uh, I quit baiting on it a month ago. But I have a I have a small food plot in there, and there's there's wheat fields on it but there's a lot of cover too. I have this one small food plot and, and then the bedding area I was talking about earlier, that's this grove of trees that's real open. There's a similar situation over here. It's a little smaller, but I'll go in there and I'll make a mock scrape in there. And that is strictly to put a camera on and see what comes in there on the edge of my food plot. I put a, that's where I'm talking about this other mock scrape. I put a mock scrape on there and just as a, as a funnel, right? It's, it's close to a tree that I can get into and hunt if, if I have that wind, that particular wind that I need for that. And it's right on the edge of hardcover going this way, right on, you know, the, the, uh, the downwinds, no, the upwind side of that cover. And then you have, and I have two, I mean, it's, it's perfect. I mean, yeah, it's just perfect. You have this little finger that juts out to the heart of a hard edge. And then you, the, right at the end of that finger is a food plot. So they're, they're coming in like this, paralleling the hard edge into the food plot like this, mock scrape right here. So where, however they come in, they're going to hopefully work the mock scrape. And that's kind of like how you'd implement it. And that's almost like a staging point. I guess you're using it as a way that, you know, not only you're attracting that buck into the air to use that scrape, but it's an area that more than likely is going to show up before dark. Um, as a spot that would make it a little bit more easy to kind of pinpoint where you need to set up versus trying to pick a specific trailer access point that he's going to be using. Right, exactly. So I have an idea of how he's going to use. He's going to come from the bedding over this way or over this way, and he's going to converge like this because he's the wind's blowing this way. He can scent check it, and then from this point, he can. It's a 
he can visually see, and he would go out that way more than likely to the uh, like the destination food, right? Have you guys predator called much? Very limited. I've killed a few coyotes through it, but it's something we don't do a whole bunch. Okay, so if out here you got wide open spaces, you predator call, you want a visual for that coyote or bobcat to see, right? He comes up a ditch and he's right there and he doesn't see anything, he's gone, right? So if he comes up and he sees a little decoy, he's locked in. Now he sees what his mind told him. It's the same way with a buck. He knows if I get put a mock scrape there, he's used it however many times I go to hunt it. It's almost like a distraction. It's a visual distraction. He comes in, he knows in his mind, he knows there's a scrape there. He gets to it and he sees, you know, within view of it, he sees it. Now he's locked on. He's going to look to see if there's any bucks around, other bucks, but he's locked onto that scrape. He's going to come to it, work it, and then from that point, and then it's like, okay, now what? So it gives you time to, you know, draw or whatever, you, you know, whatever you want to do, swing around in your saddle. It's like the decoy and predator calling in my mind. No, that's a really good point. By the way, how does your uh, strategies and tactics change for the rut, or does anything change when it comes to, like, the rut out there? I hate the rut. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. I've killed – I mean, I've killed quite a few bucks in the rut, but uh, any strategy goes out the window because you, ha you have your early season pre leading up to pre-rut. You can. I mean, I can nerd out, strategize, whatever. Kill deer, right? The first two weeks of October, if I didn't have to work so much either in those in that time, I mean, you can kill deer, right? After into December, it's the same way. It's you can strategize and kill deer, but from November fifth, sixth, you know, to the it, it definitely changes because that that's when people kill deer over corn, because. They're going to follow that doe. That doe wants to bite. I've seen, I don't know how many times I've seen this. They're going to follow that doe right into the feeder. He doesn't care. He has one thing on his mind and come right to that corn. And he won't check the wind. He won't do anything. He's following that doe. So you're setting up on your bait. That's when you hunt bait. It might be dead for days and you're going to kill a giant there. Possibly, right? As far as my strategy goes, it's the same as it's hunting where I can see. I love to ground hunt. I love to decoy. So I, I want to get to where I can see and, and find the lockdown buck and then try to get close to him. It, I mean, that's hands down my favorite way. Interesting. Now, okay, so you see a lockdown buck. Now, this is something I've, I've never done. Of course, you don't have a whole bunch of opportunity in the southeast to do this, but I've dreamt of doing this, okay? you know, if, It's if, on the bucket list. Anyone watches uh, uh, Whitetail Adrenaline uh, in any of their DVDs or any of their YouTube videos, you know, you see them decoying deer all out in, in, in the, the Midwest and the, in the really the western states too. Um, mm. How long have you been doing that, and what is your uh, thought process on the whole decoying aspect? So... <laughs> So I've, I've killed a few bucks off the ground, but I have yet to kill one with a decoy. And that's just because I'm extremely picky. That that buck down there, you can't really see him really good. That deer's 170-some inches. I decoyed that deer into 15 yards and couldn't kill him. And that that is the biggest rush that you – I mean, it is, it's a blast. Yeah, but just get – the thing is you have to find a buck that is locked down, that is committed to a doe. Then you have to be able to get within the bubble of that buck before you present your decoy. 
Because if you're 150 yards away and you show your decoy, he's going to move because he has the he has the time. He doesn't want that bug near his doe. He's going to move, right? So you get within – it might be 60 yards, whatever he doesn't feel comfortable with, and then pop that decoy up, and it just – it is insane. Last year, I got so close to doing it, a buck I didn't even end up killing. And it, yeah, it, it's just amazing. I started doing it, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. It's it's a riot. Yeah, no, that, I, I can't imagine. It's like, uh, you know, you see guys, you know, of course, decoying, you know, turkeys and all that kind of stuff, but you're decoying a buck that could be, you know, 190 plus pound deer, 200 pound plus deer. Um, and, and again, those are like the most fascinating YouTube videos. You go on YouTube, guys, and just search, you know, decoying buck out in the plains, and it's like, it's insane kind of seeing some of that stuff. And uh, yeah. shot angles and everything. I'm really curious about that, too, because <clears throat> it kind of plays on something that, that we never really talk about, and especially here in the Southeast, we never talk about, as Jacob just mentioned, and that is like the visual aspect of a like a whitetail and and how they use their their vision for things and i feel like where we hunt it so thick that that doesn't really come through a whole bunch outside of them seeing you in a tree if you're not hidden well uh but you you mentioned a little bit earlier with the mock scrapes that you like to make and it like i just wanted to kind of relate it to back when i used i used to trap a lot uh, back in high school and with like a dirt hole set if anybody's familiar with trapping a dirt hole set is where you literally you dig a hole in the ground at like a 45 degree angle maybe in like the side of a road bank or something and and you kind of scrape out the ground and you and you put a scent in the hole and you offset your trap like six six inches from that hole in the hopes that like a coyote or a bobcat or a fox or a coon or whatever you're trying to trap comes to that hole and he's trying to smell in there and then he's going to put his hand on that trap uh and the the way that I learned how to do that is with a dirt hole set, you make it unreasonably large. Like you just make it huge and you make it like a visual aspect where they're going to see it and they're going to be like, holy smokes, like what is going on there? And I started adopting that for mock scrapes, kind of like you're talking about where, dude, when I make a mock scrape, I make it like if somebody just happens to stumble across it, they're going to wet their pants. You know, I mean, it is like a <laughs> giant scrape, dude, as big as I can possibly make it. Yeah. And, and like, I've started kind of experimenting with that where I, I don't put estrus in it. I don't put bucks in, in it and I don't pee in it, which I usually pee in scrapes. Like if I got to pee in the woods, I'm peeing in the scrape, but I, I don't pee in it. Don't, don't do anything. And I just scrape out this big, huge area and see if they start using it. And I started, I felt like I had a higher success rate when I did that. Because I think partly it's because you're disturbing so much earth. There's so much scent coming up, like that fresh dirt scent, I feel like, piques their curiosity. But also, they can see it from, like, however far in the woods, you know. So I, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I, I agree 100%. They're very, very visual. And they wanna, they're want to. they also very curious. They want to know what's going on, right? They see that. They're like, whoa, what, you know, what the heck's going on over here, right? But if they walk over there, they also – I feel like as hunters, we think of deer like we see deer, but that's very, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Deer interact constantly. They interact with each other constantly. They know each other and they see a scrape over here. They go smell it. They smell, you put some synthetic in there. They smell a deer. They, they don't know. Not only that, they smell five deer. They don't know that that's not natural. So now, obviously, there's people that are way smarter than me that have way a lot of success with this. 
going against what I'm saying, right? But I've had very good success, like you're saying, the visual eye appeal of it. That that little two year old, he goes over there, he works that scrape, cause man, it looks amazing, right? And then everybody in that area knows that two year old. Every doe, every buck knows that two year old, right? So then he does it. Then another two year old. Then another three year old. Pretty soon you're creating a another scrape, another stop on their uh, trail. Yeah. I, man, I love that because I've, I've talked about that in the past a little bit. Uh, I think we talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but I know I've talked about it like with my hunting buddies. It's like, it almost seems like when you make a mock scrape, if you do it right, uh, like I've never been a fan of like scrape drippers or anything of that nature, just because I'm like, if you do it right, you don't really need that because they're going to keep it fresh for you. Like you should be able to just go in there and open that scrape up. And then like you're talking about, you get those two year olds using it, you get some does using it. And then all of a sudden you're off to the races and they're like, okay, here's a scrape. There's a scrape here. Now we're using it. Uh, so is that, is that something similar to what you've seen? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's your hunting public land or, a, you know, a club with 20 people on it. You put a dripper above that scrape, shoot everybody in the, Everybody walks by within however far can see that thing, you know, and know what it is. That's one thing, yeah. But yeah, it just it just takes off and keeps going. But you you also have to be a little bit strategic too about where you know where you place it. You just can't you can't just put a scrape anywhere and expect it to take off, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's the same down there, right? You just can't put it on some random ridge where there's no acorns, no feed trees or anything and expect it to take off. There has to be a good reason for those deer to be in the area. Basically you're taking deer that are already using the area. Mm-hmm. You're putting something that stops them to shoot. them. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. That's what I, I've recently started saying this on the podcast. And what I say is like the, the deer are not there because of the scrape. The scrape is there because of the deer. And exactly. so like yeah. you, you have to look at, finding a community scrape that way you know if you're going out you're trying to find a community scrape but also if you're trying to put a mock scrape out to kind of take the place of that community scrape you know if there's not one there for whatever reason uh it's the the deer because man I, i made a lot of mock scrapes just looking back i'm like what was that like why did i even think you know there was like no deer sign and i'm like i'm gonna put a scrape here and they're gonna start coming to it like and it yeah, right. it never worked, you know, and it's it always has to be that the deer are already there. You just have to give them the scrape that they they should already have, and you're nodding right. your head along like like you agree with that for sure. A hundred percent, and it's the same way with just about unless you have the ability to go put a twenty acre food plot in, that's the only way you're going to change a deer's pattern or how they use something, right? But if if you're going to put a scrape or even bait. You can't put bait where there's not deer and expect deer to be there, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And also, too, by the way, just for people who are looking to implement, uh, like a bait strategy in a way, kind of like what you're talking about, where you're putting that bait out almost as just a focal point. You're going to hunt off of it. Uh, do the same principles apply? Like you're trying to put that bait pile in a place that you can strategically hunt their entry and exit route to it. You're trying to put it in a place that they're kind of funneling around to begin with. Right. Yeah. So I, I like to think of it as an extreme, right? If I can prove to you the extremes, you can get the micro. You have the bedding and I put it a half a mile away out in this, pasture that cows use you're going to get a few does to use it right 
but that's about it. Maybe a buck will use it at night. You're going to get like five deer to use it, right? Because you're not only are you off of the cover, you're also away from where they want to go, right? You're not going to move those deer with, I don't, know how much, I don't care how much corn you put out. You're not going to move those deer. But as that, as you move that in, you're going to get more and more deer, right? To the cover, right? Here's your cover. And if you put that right in the cover, you're going to have deer on there all day long. You probably won't be able to hunt it, but you'll have deer on there all day long. So somewhere between here and here is the sweet spot. You've got to find that sweet spot, right? It's the same way. I think it's the same way with a, a mock scrape or, or corn or whatever. You have to find where you're not too close to the deer, but you're just you're just enough where it makes sense for them, and they can use it in a way that you can kill them using it. Either that might be going to it, leaving it, or even using it. But I never, I, I feel like I, well, I know this is a fact. People go out to their their lease or their property or whatever. They look around and they see this amazing tree. Especially out here, we have no trees that are just you know, amazing. They think, oh my goodness. They put up their stand, they put out their bait. But that is the opposite of how you should do it. You should put out your mock scrape or your bait. Like you're saying, where are the deer? Where are they using it? How can I move them 10 feet, 30 feet off of this travel corridor? And then after I establish where that is going to be, then I look to where I'm going to hunt. That might not be, you know, in the most beautiful tree right on the bait. It's, it might be, but it might also be a hundred yards away. Yeah. I, I love it, man. I love it. That That's so strategic because, you know, like you're saying, if you get it too far away from the cover, they're going to be showing up after daylight. If you get it too close to the cover, then all of a sudden you're trying or they're showing up after dark. <laughs> if you move it, I'm fired up. Uh, if you move it too close to the cover, then all of a sudden you're finding yourself in a situation where you have to sneak within 75 yards of a bedded buck and you're probably going to bump him or the does or whatever. So you're trying to find right. that sweet spot, you know, where you're not going to be getting them after dark, but also you're not going to be blowing them out just trying to get in there. You know, you're going to, you're going to be able to access on your terms, you know, when it works right. for you, but also when the buck thinks it, it works for him as well. And you're going to be able to sneak in there and get him. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I will hunt bait occasionally, like right over bait. I'll hunt bait over bait sometimes, especially like if I have, um, like my dad came and hunted with me not that long ago and I'll have friends come in and hunt family, whatever they want to hunt. I'll, I'll set them up on bait. Absolutely. Because that bait never gets hunted. So I, I say, okay, you can hunt this bait tonight. You have the perfect weather, perfect wind, go in there and hunt this bait and you're going to be able to kill a buck, right? Okay. Maybe there's a four-year-old. I don't think has any potential. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a, an old buck that whatever, you know, that isn't anything special. You're going to be able to kill deer. Maybe they want to shoot does, right? You're going to be able to kill deer over bait. The, the key to killing deer over bait is number one, entry and exit. You're not blowing deer out trying to get to it. Number two is you never hunt it. And I can't, I cannot stress that enough. If you, it's even here where we have so many deer and we have no acorns. They're going to eat corn, right? But if you hunt that six, seven, eight times, whatever, they get smart so fast. They'll come in there after dark. But now, instead of that doe looping around 10 yards to the downwind side, now that doe, she's looping 40 yards around, and she's getting your wind. And once that doe gets your wind, it's over. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense, man. And it, and it goes to show, I mean, why so many guys bait my, my hunting club is a great example of this. Uh, 
man, I mean, they've been in this club. They've had this club for like, it, it's been a hunting club for like 40 years. But oh, the, wow. the current, you know, people who are in it have been in it about, I think, about eight years. And there has not been very many big deer killed. And they all hunt kind of the same exact way. And, man, I had a guy, there's a guy in the club, man. We were out there Saturday, and he came by, and he's like, y'all see anything? I'm like, yeah, I killed a doe. And he was like, okay, is so is that going to be your one doe for the year? I'm like, I don't know. It might be. It depends on if I feel like shooting another doe. And he was like, well, man, we got to do something to get some deer back on this place. And he's talking about how he can't, he's not seeing any deer and how our deer numbers are so down. And he's one of the, he's one of those guys, man, that he's hunting those food plots. And I'm just like, dude, like you ain't hunting where I'm hunting. There's plenty of deer on this place. Like we need to kill more does. You know, right, yeah. and and he's yeah. just he's just not hunting in the, in the right areas, and he's not <laughs> like I don't know, man. It's just it's something uh, in those yeah. situations. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. and it, you're hunting the same property and getting two different mindsets. It, to me, that that says all you need need to say. Yeah, yeah, man. It, it's it's really something. I'm I'm really enjoying kind of figuring out the property, and uh, and uh, I I don't know if Jacob has any more questions, but but I have one more like really glaring question that I wanted to ask you, and that was uh. You mentioned that you have like a 170 on your wall back there, and you you euro mounted it. Interesting. <laughs> so 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 man, like I, I gotta ask, like you're you're euro mounting all these giant bucks. Like y'all just not like shoulder mounts. Like I'm curious because if someone kills like a 140 around here and euro mounts it, that's like a flex. That's like a big time flex, you know. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it to flex. That's for sure. I told myself. Yeah, I told my wife too. Well, yeah, I told her like if I once I kill a 170, if I kill a booner, I'll mount it. And then I shot that deer and I just I couldn't do it. I don't know why. I just couldn't do it. It's so cool. I love to see the skull. It's so massive. I just love love to see it. I, I don't know why it is. besides it's expensive. Like I would rather spend the money on going to hunt Kansas or somewhere else, Colorado. So I that's part remember. of the reason. I can relate with that, man. Yeah, I love your amount. I love your amount. Jacob was talking about it too, man. Like, Jacob mounts everything, bro. <laughs> Jacob shoot a five-point. He's mounting it. Like, shoulder-mounting that joker. Ain't got no room for it, but he's hey, shoulder-mounting hey, it. Hey, I, I, I got to pay for our tax service's new furniture, so. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes them shoulder-mounts make them look bigger, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, can you put smaller ears on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Let's use a dough form. Yeah. <laughs> I, my my wife has uh it's like a 184 mounted that I mounted for and then I've got a couple I got a mule deer that's mounted and I've got one that white tail I just shot last I got it at the tax number so I'm getting it mounted yeah but I don't know why yeah those ones up there if you can see those up on that wall up here those are all my wife's oh dang oh that's legit yep. man dude yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a family full of killers yeah that's right well um. Tyrell, let me let me ask: Is there anything that we've missed um, in regards to like kind of like your your thought process, your perspective when it comes to like hunting these whitetails out there in kind of that you know that northern part of Oklahoma? Man, I don't I don't think so. I I mean I think the two biggest things, just to maybe bullet point a few big things here, is hunt the weather. Wait for wait. Be patient. Hunt the weather. I I feel like I can't stress that enough especially early and late. The rut's kind of a toss-up. Early, late, hunt the cold fronts, hunt the back end of the cold fronts, and you will have way more enjoyable hunts. You'll see more deer. You'll see more big deer. 
I, I mean, I think that's number one, up, one, number one up there. And then number two is don't get locked into anything. Be be in your mind, even if it, even if you're maybe not that mobile as far as your hunting style. Don't get locked into anything, whether it's hunting scrapes, whether it's hunting a time of year, hunting them. I mean, some guys are moon phase, whatever. Moon phase, don't get locked in to anything besides weather. You can get locked into that. Anything else, don't get locked. Be open-minded. I would say that's number two things you need to think about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Tyrell, I appreciate you joining us on this podcast episode. It's been fun. Again, kind of hit uh, another episode coming out of Oklahoma. I think this is only the second one we've ever done from Oklahoma. Yeah, it might I'm, be. I'm pretty certain. But um, listen, dude, you already tagged out, or you already tagged one great buck. I know you got one more tag in your pocket, so we'll see how it's against uh, the rest of your season plays. And then you still got Kansas tag, man. So still got a lot of hunting left to do for this year. Um, but listen, appreciate you joining us on the podcast. As listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, of course, make sure you go check out the YouTube version because again, we get all this is on the video podcast. So Tyrell is doing a lot of hand gestures, talking about different setups and stuff. So you need to go to YouTube so you can actually check that out and actually see, you know, again, a visual of kind of what he was talking about with some of these different betting areas, pitch points, the whole nine yards and gear movement. But appreciate y'all watching. Appreciate y'all listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We'll, get, we'll catch y'all back for the next episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. Y'all stay safe. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.